Introduction, Part Two of the Path of Light, the Bodhicharya Avatara of Shanti Deva, translated by L. D. Barnett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Eric Metzler, Albuquerque, New Mexico, United States of America. Introduction, Part Two. This is in broad outline the teaching of Buddhism as it is understood by most Buddhists in Ceylon and further India. In theory it verges upon nihilistic idealism, for it regards all the data of finite experience as pure subjective phenomena corresponding to no objective reality, and created merely by the force of karma. There is no higher power than man's own will, and is karma to help him toward salvation. On the deepest mysteries of existence, the origin of karma and the condition of the spirit after it has passed away forever from the cycle of births, Buddhism has nothing to tell us. In practice it is a creed that fosters in its votaries in abundant measure both the homely virtues of laic life and the higher spiritual aspirations of asceticism, and its ideals are well expressed in one of its best-known texts, the Mangala Sutta of the Suttanipata. Following not the foolish, following the learned, reverence for the worshipful, this is the highest blessing. Dwelling in a meet land, merit from deeds done of old, do heed to one's own spirit, this is the highest blessing. Depth of learning, craftsmanship, gentle breeding well taught, words well spoken, this is the highest blessing. Service to father and mother, the company of wife and child, and peaceful pursuits, this is the highest blessing. Almsgiving and righteousness, the company of kinsfolk, blameless works, this is the highest blessing. Withholding and withdrawing oneself from sin, abstinence from strong drink, heedfulness in doing duty, this is the highest blessing. Reverence and humility, cheerfulness and gratitude, listening in due season to the law, this is the highest blessing. Long-suffering, gentleness of speech, sight of godly men, conversation upon the law in due season, this is the highest blessing. Mortification of the flesh and chastity, vision of the noble truths, and winning to the nirvana, this is the highest blessing. He whose spirit is stirred not when he is touched by the shows of the world, but abides unsorrowing, undefiled, and happy, this is the highest blessing. They who do thus, and are never overwhelmed, come ever to salvation, theirs is this highest blessing. But an important question arises here. Are the doctrines which we have outlined the original teaching of the Buddha, or do they not rather represent the opinions of the school which formed the Pali Canon some centuries after his death, a monastic fraternity with a strong bent towards rationalism? Even in this canon the teachings ascribed to the Master are full of logical inconsistencies. What, then, was the Master's own doctrine? Certain knowledge on this point is impossible, but it seems most likely that the Buddha's real attitude was something like that of the positivist and agnostic. He had no revelations to communicate on the highest problems of philosophy and theology. Sometimes he seems to have inclined in his utterances to one side, sometimes to another, 
but this was apparently for the sake of argument, and there seems to be much truth in the tradition which represents him as having forbidden his followers to speculate upon the deepest questions of life. Even of nirvana he refused to give any definition. When the question was bluntly put by an inquiring monk, he was told that he would never know anything about it. It is even doubtful whether his denial of the self was an essential part of his doctrine, or whether it was only adopted for purposes of controversy. His great aim was practical. He sought to impart a remedy for the world's sorrow, to teach his fellow creatures an escape from their karma and its fatal fruit of earthly birth. This remedy was the utter destruction of desire, even of the desire for salvation. It could be attained by the man or woman who renounced the world, entered into the monastic order, followed the noble path, and in perfect calm and happiness of spirit waited until death should open the portals of the unknowable, everlasting stillness, from which there is no return. Karma and its resulting metempsychosis were to him facts of practical experience, and could be remedied by an empirical method, the suppression of desire under a practical law of conduct. As to their metaphysical baseness, he made no revelation. It is as the departed teacher of the way to nirvana, as the master, that he is worshipped by the orthodox. But there were other elements in the doctrine of early Buddhism which could not fail to bear fruit. As we have already remarked, it lays stress on the impermanence of beings. Nothing finite exists in itself. Everything is a collection of skandhas, temporarily united. It is, in fact, a theory of phenomenalism, and thus opened a way for development in two directions. On the one hand, there grew up a school of nihilism, which dialectically established the non-existence of everything. On the other hand arose an idealism which arrived at very similar conclusions. In another and more practical issue the newer teaching departed from the old. The Buddha Gautama, according to the doctrine of his church, was preceded by twenty-four other Buddhas, each of whom is supposed to have preached the same law in different ages of the world. Now a Buddha can only attain the rank of Buddhahood after a long course of spiritual progress in former births of the most various kinds. A being thus destined to Buddhahood is called a Bodhisattva, or creature of enlightenment. At some point in his existence he has conceived an aspiration to become a Buddha for the salvation of his fellow creatures, and thenceforth he advances in birth after birth to higher and higher sanctity in the practice of the Ten Perfections until at last he is born as the Buddha, preaches the law, and passes away into the everlasting stillness of nirvana. A vast amount of Buddhist literature consists of jatakas, or legends of the deeds in which the bodhisattvas proved their fitness for their high mission. It was around these points that the breach arose which split the church into the divisions which we commonly, and somewhat inaccurately, distinguished as northern and southern Buddhism. The older Buddhism that we have surveyed in outline did not give enough play for the elements of mysticism and emotion that have always been strong in the Hindu spirit. Its saints, the Arhats, were regularly ordained members of monastic fraternities who sought salvation for themselves and denied nirvana to laymen. 
and though their deeds of charity and other righteousness were incontestable it was argued that their merit was marred by this self-seeking its theology was very sober according to indian standards it tended towards intellectualism and allowed little room for the large and highly coloured mythological imagination in which the hindu thought revels now during the earlier centuries of buddhism the vishnuite church grew rapidly and the spirit that inspired it was stirring likewise in buddhism the force was what the hindus call bhakti a passionate emotional worship of a supreme god revealed on earth in human personality many buddhists also longed to find a supreme god to whom they could offer a worship of the heart and whose personality could satisfy their restless imaginations thus arose upon the old foundations a new church a vast and gorgeous edifice of soaring fancy tenanted by countless buddhas and bodhisattvas transfigured into a magnificent brilliance of godhead and worshipped with a passionate fervour of self-surrendering love the new church held out to all alike the dazzling hope of buddhahood every man however humble or sinful might become a bodhisattva a candidate for buddhahood and finally reach that blessed end if he would but will it so and hold to his purpose love for the holy buddhas and bodhisattvas of the past the omnipotent and omnipresent hierarchy of heaven and love for his fellow-creatures manifested in perfect self-sacrifice for their needs active compassion and charity were the prime requisites for salvation inspired by this vivid energy the new buddhism speedily took possession of northern india tibet central asia and china that this movement was antinomian and fraught with danger from the first is obvious its doctrine of love unfettered by considerations of social expediency and ordinary morality and the wild luxuriance of its myth were capable of working harm as well as good and in practice have often lent themselves to the most disgraceful abuse but on this dark side of the picture we need not dwell here it is enough that we should recognize that the mahayana the great vehicle as the new church proudly called itself in opposition to the more primitive buddhism which it scornfully styled hinayana the little vehicle laid especial stress upon the emotional side of religion and ethics which had been somewhat neglected in the latter school and that it thus gained a novel character and significance in the doctrine of the older schools the buddha was a teacher whose enlightenment raised him above all the gods but withal a man who had passed away from the world for ever and could no more wield any influence upon it save as a holy and blessed memory his nirvana was the same as that of any other man who should attain it he dispensed no divine power to bring his followers to salvation only their own efforts could win for them that goal man's destiny is moulded by his own acts his karma and each individual's karma concerns him alone and cannot be applied for the spiritual wheel of another lastly as we have already remarked salvation was confined to the monastic orders the mahayana changed almost everything the buddha now appeared as a god of the first order invested with all the qualities that the most extravagant mythopoeic imagination could suggest like the conception of christ in the docetic schools he was imagined as existing throughout the whole of the cosmic period 
in the body of enjoyment visible to the beatified bodhisattvas, and the body of magic form revealed to common mortals. And he was multiplied to infinity. Imagination created countless periods and countless domains, each under the presidency of a Buddha. And from the beginning of our era we observe that the historical Gautama Buddha, even in his most mythical disguise, begins to fall into the background, whilst other figures of purely mythical origin become the first favorites of popular fancy. The most conspicuous of these is the Buddha Amitabha, he of infinite light, a being of supreme splendor and grace. For now the Buddhas have become active dispensers of grace, at any rate from the standpoint of relative truth. Each Buddha dwells in his paradise amidst a retinue of bodhisattvas. Of the latter the two highest in rank serve as the ministers of his grace, constantly visiting the worlds under his rule in the forms most suitable to their purpose, in order to show their love for suffering mortality by helping them in diverse ways and leading them to paradise. The paradise of Amitabha is Sukhavati, the happy place, a fairyland which is tenanted by an entirely divine population dwelling in perfect bliss. Amitabha's chief minister is Avalokitesvara, a bodhisattva who has taken a vow not to enter nirvana until he has led thither all living creatures, and who for this supreme grace is worshipped throughout the north with a corresponding fervor of devotion. As a last development of this mythology, the Buddhists are associated with Taras, or savior ladies, who under the form of sexual antithesis typify their consort's energy of grace. The moral standpoint is likewise changed. The ideal is no longer the calm, ascetic monk, waiting in cheerful tranquillity for the end, but the bodhisattva, the self-appointed votary seeking eagerly to procure happiness for his fellow creatures at any cost, even if he must surrender his own right to spiritual advancement as the price. For now is affirmed the principle of parinamana. The karma of an individual is no longer confined to his experience, but can be made to redound to the benefit of others. The righteous can, of their own free will, sacrifice the merit of their own good deeds for the happiness of their fellow creatures. Strictly speaking, as we shall see, the ideas of self, non-self, happiness, and suffering are illusions. They are real only from the standpoint of relative truth. But this condition of imperfect reality is inseparable from humanity. It must be accepted and made the basis of a moral activity which by perfect self-sacrifice purifies the spirit from the taint of finite error. And so Shantideva ends his Bodhicharya avatara with a chapter of prayer that the merit gained by him by his work may not only uplift him to the higher grades of beatification as a bodhisattva, but may also be diverted for the benefit of fellow creatures. Through the blessing which comes to me for pondering upon the entrance into the path of enlightenment, may all beings be brightened by walking in enlightenment. May all that are sick of body and soul in every region find oceans of bliss and delight through my merits. Whilst embodied life lasts on, may they never lack happiness, and forever may the world win the joy of the sons of enlightenment. In all the hells that are in the spheres of the universe, 
may creatures rejoice in the delights of paradise. May they that are afflicted with cold find warmth, the heat-smitten be cooled in the oceans raining from the mighty clouds of the sun of enlightenment. May all skies be gracious to all wayfarers, and may they encompass as they purpose the enterprise for which they journey. May such as travel on ship achieve their desire, and come in happiness to shore and rejoice with their kindred. May they who stray amid wildernesses find company of travellers' troops, and journey on without dread of bandits and wild beasts. In the stress of sickness, wildernesses, and the like, may the heavenly powers guard the slumbering, the distraught, and the heedless, the masterless, the young, and the aged. May they be forever saved from all mischance, dowered with faith, understanding, and tenderness, and possessed of goodly shape and virtue. May their storehouses never fail, and their treasuries rise to the skies, and may they live in freedom, without strife or affliction. May beings of little strength win much strength, and the hapless creatures that are of ill form become goodly. May all women in the world become men, and to their estate may the humble come and lose their vanity. Through this my merit, may all beings cease from every sin, and everlastingly do righteousness, lacking not the thought of enlightenment, surrendering themselves to the path of enlightenment, withholding their hands from the works of the tempter, and be taken into the arms of the enlightened. May all creatures have boundless term of age, may they live forever in bliss, and the very name of death perish. May all regions become filled with Buddhas and sons of the Buddhas, and lovely with groves of the trees of desire, ravishing the heart with the sound of the law. As long as the heavens and the earth abide, may I continue to overcome the world's sorrows. May all the world's suffering be cast upon me, and may the world be made happy by all the merits of the Bodhisattva. In its metaphysics the Mahayana carried to a logical conclusion the nihilistic idealism that had begun to find expression in the older schools. Its cardinal doctrine is that all is void. Everything that is conceived or can be conceived by the mind is but a subjective imagination in constant flux, existing only an instance of the thought of the subject and by virtue of his karma. No permanent reality can be predicated of it, except that it is really void. There are five skandhas, and these he considered as by their nature empty. Form is emptiness, and emptiness indeed is form. Thus perception, name, conception, and knowledge also are emptiness. Thus, O Sariputra, all things have the character of emptiness. They have no beginning, no end. They are faultless and not faultless. They are not imperfect and not perfect. Therefore, O Sariputra, here in this emptiness there is no form, no perception, no name, no concept, no knowledge, no eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind, no form, sound, smell, taste, touch, and objects. There is no knowledge, no ignorance, no destruction of ignorance. There is no decay and death, no destruction of decay and death. There are not the four truths, viz. That there is pain, origin of pain, stoppage of pain, and the path to it. There is no knowledge, no obtaining, no not obtaining, 
of nirvana. Therefore, O Sariputra, as there is no obtaining of nirvana, a man who has approached the prajna paramita of the bodhisattvas dwells for a time enveloped in consciousness. But when the envelopment of consciousness has been annihilated, then he becomes free of all fear, beyond the reach of change, enjoying final nirvana. Thus everything, even the most fundamental doctrines of Buddhism, and the existence of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, is denied. But the negation is not intended to be absolute. The Vedantic metaphysicians could find no term to predicate of Brahma, the absolute, transcendent reality, but nay, nay. And it is rather in this sense that we should interpret the negations of the Mahayana philosophers. They predicate nothingness of everything but that which is beyond all predication, the inconceivable, transcendental all. They felt that this was a reality too vast for words, a truth before which the thought must be still. But yet they felt it as mysteriously revealing its existence in their moral consciousness, as a divine glory faintly reflected in the soul of man. And they called it the Dharmakaya, the body of the law. For in the stillness of this transcendental unity of joy and love and peace, all spirits are one, and this is the law of the Buddha. Thus the Buddhists, like the Vedantis, were able to accept two spheres of reality. One was the absolute truth, the void. The other was that of relative truth, in which they could rear their edifices of doctrine and myth. Of the Buddha and his law they could, in transcendental truth, say only, no. As practical realities they affirmed them heartily. Being and thought are one in the opinion of these Buddhist idealists. In the objects of thought there dwells no reality except the thought which conceives them. Now the highest being is the void, and the understanding of this is the absolute truth, the enlightenment, bodhi, or perfect wisdom, prajna paramita, which is the peculiar possession of a Buddha. This knowledge is actually realized by a Buddha in the ecstasy of his nirvana, where he dwells forever in the utter stillness of infinite thought. But it sometimes happens that a bodhisattva who, through the perfection of his wisdom and righteousness, is ripe to enter nirvana, will not take this step, for his abounding compassion urges him to remain in finite being and to soothe the sorrows of his fellow-creatures. His passage into nirvana is then potential, capable of being realized at his will. This enlightenment in nirvana, actual or potential, together with the void which is its object and therefore is identical with it, is the dharmakaya, the body of the law. But the needs of history and myth must also be satisfied, and the Mahayana achieved this by inventing two more conceptions, the sambhogakaya, or body of enjoyment, and the nirmanakaya, or body of magical form. Every Buddha has a domain of his own, or Buddha Kshetra, a universe under the rule of the law preached by him. The magnificence of such a domain is proportionate to the nobility of the deeds performed by its ruling Buddha during his probation as a bodhisattva. In these domains the reigning Buddhas are revealed to their attendant bodhisattvas in gigantic, radiant forms, 
surrounded by halos composed of magical figures of Buddhas. These forms, though manifest to the sanctified senses of the divine company, are essentially spiritual, and the Buddhas wearing them are constantly teaching their holy law to the bodhisattvas of highest rank, who appear in similarly transfigured bodies. This beatific form is the Sambhogakaya, or body of enjoyment. It is the fruit of the merit acquired by the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas through countless deeds of liberality, long-suffering, and virtue. It dwells in the celestial sphere until the faraway day when the Buddha shall enter into his final nirvana. Then in its place will appear a stupa, or monument sanctuary, and the Buddha will rest in perfect stillness. In the case of the Buddhas, this transfiguration is, strictly speaking, illusory. The Buddhas have passed into nirvana, the void. They are identified with the body of the law, in which finitude does not exist. But the merit of their good deeds still lives on in the finite world, and becomes a force working spontaneously for the happiness and welfare of other creatures. It thus creates in the minds of the holy bodhisattvas the conception of a Samboga kaya of their Buddha revealing itself for their joy and instruction in beatific form. While this theory of the body of enjoyment satisfied the hunger of the imagination for visions of paradise, the doctrine of the body of magical form attempted to explain the appearance of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas in the world of mortality. They never really appeared among men, and never will so appear according to the Buddhist sages. They were but illusions, phantoms which the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas in their bodies of enjoyment created from their compassion to help and instruct the blind and sorrowing creatures of the world. Even as the Buddha's merits have been turned to the profit of the Bodhisattvas by conjuring up before their eyes the vision of their transfigured forms in paradise, so this same force brings blessing to the lower classes of beings by creating for them apparitions of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas teaching the law in the most diverse guises. And this idea has also its metaphysical side. We have seen that, to the Buddhist philosopher, the subject and the object of a thought are really one, so that the Dharmakaya represents at once the infinite and the understanding of the infinite. In the same way, the body of magical form represents also the universal intellect when, under the influence of samskaras or confirmations resulting from former moments of consciousness and will, it conceives its object as a universe of finite forms. Thus the universal intellect issues in what appear to themselves to be individual minds dwelling in finite worlds under the dispensation of the Buddhas. This seeming individuality and finitude is the congenital illusion of the lower orders of creatures, from which the law of the Buddhas alone can uplift them to union with the Absolute. The current of mystic imagination which culminated in this bold theology seems to have arisen early. Possibly it may, in a rudimentary form, have been one of the elements of primitive Buddhism which were rejected as heretical by the more puritanic schools of the Hinayana. Certainly it was already well established before the Christian era, and the famous Council of King Kanishka gave official recognition to the Mahayana doctrines, and apparently granted to them the royal favor. If modern research is right in identifying the date of Kanishka's accession with the initial date of the Samvat era, 58 BC, 
than the council traditionally believed to have been held under his auspices, must have sat not many years afterwards. To a somewhat later date may be ascribed a half-legendary, half-historical character that is of singular interest. The real Nagarjuna, the scholar who founded the Madhyamika school, is overshadowed by the legendary Nagarjuna, the hero of a hundred myths in which he figures as a miracle-working saint who propagated his doctrine by the marvels of his magic. These wild legends have passed from Buddhist circles into the common stock of Hindu tradition, where he has become a typical sorcerer, to whom are ascribed many works on the black art and divination, notably the popular Kakshaputta. The real work of Nagarjuna, however, was much more respectable. He systematized the old Mahayana into the Madhyamika school, which by its vigorous dialectic became one of the most effective vehicles of northern Buddhism. And it is to a follower of his school, Shanti Deva, who lived in the seventh century, or possibly somewhat earlier, that we owe two works, the Bodhicharya Avatara and the Siksha Samukchaya, in which are embodied the keenest logic and the highest spiritual aspirations attained by the Buddhism of the North. The following pages contain an abridged translation of the original Sanskrit of the Bodhicharya Avatara, based upon two editions that contained in Volume 2 of the Journal of the Buddhist Text Society, Calcutta, 1894, and that published with Pranjakaramati's commentary by Professor L. de la Vallée-Poussin in the Bibliotheca Indica. I have omitted a good deal of the text where it seemed needlessly prolix, and the whole of the scholastic disputation which makes up the bulk of the ninth chapter, but I hope that even in this curtailed form my translation will enable readers to understand and fairly appreciate the fervent devotion and brotherly love which make this little book, in spite of its errors, a lasting monument of true religious emotion, an everlasting possession. End of Introduction Part 2 Recording by Eric Metzer, Albuquerque, New Mexico, United States of America